Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Onk Ducks. This week's episode, we're going to be focusing on one more of the myeloproliferative neoplasms, primary myelofibrosis, also known as PMF for the rest of the episode. We'll go over the important details on the diagnosis, risk stratification, as well as the treatment. So as you guys know, we previously covered essential thrombocythemia, ET, as well as polycythemia vera, PV. And also to note, there's a few other neoplasms that fall into this category of MPNs. They include CML, CNL, chronic eosinophilic leukemia, among others. Absolutely. And so out of all these myeloproliferative neoplasms, how common is primary myelofibrosis? So thankfully, PMF is the least common of the myeloproliferative disorders. And the hallmark of PMF is increased cytokine production that leads to increased bone marrow fibrosis, as well as extramedullary hematopoiesis. And what sign and symptoms will one see in PMF? So on a blood smear, you'll see teardrop and nucleated red blood cells. They're getting pushed out into the periphery too soon. You'll also see large platelets, increased basophilia, increased CD34 positive cells, and the peripheral blood. On a bone marrow, you may see a dry tap, which means the inability to obtain an aspirate due to that fibrosis. You'll see increased fibrosis with hypercellularity and atypical megalocaryocytes. Like ET and PV, PMF can have the JAK2V17F mutation in 60% of the cases. You can also see constitutional symptoms like fever and weight loss, as well as early satiety and abdominal pain from the massive spinal megaly. This is due to the extramedullary hematopoiesis that happens in the spleen, as well as splenic infarcts, which lead to the pain. Absolutely. And what other locations can you see extramedullary hematopoiesis in PMF? So outside of the spleen, you can also see hematopoiesis in the lungs. This is very rare, but it can lead to pleural effusions. And even more rare, you can see paraspinal extramedullary hematopoiesis, which can put patients at risk for cord compression. I have not honestly seen this, but it is something noted in the literature and something they could give you guys on testing. And then what is the diagnostic criteria for PMF? So the WHO requirements include three major criteria. You have to have all of them, and they are megakaryocytic proliferation and atypia, along with increased fibrosis, grade two or three, not meeting the criteria for other MPNs and having either the JAK2, CalR, or MPL mutation. In addition to those three major criteria, you have to have at least one of the minor, which is increased basophils in the periphery, leukocytosis greater than 11, anemia, splenomegaly, or increased LDH. Yes, and one other key word that they might throw out is leukoerythroblastosis, which is when you have increased immature erythroid and immature myeloid cells in the peripheral blood. And so what are other causes of myelofibrosis that we need to rule out? You must rule out those secondary causes of myelofibrosis. They can include AML, the M7 variant, late-stage PVET or CML, infections such as TB, autoimmune disorders, hairy cell leukemia, and metastatic carcinoma. Yes, I had a note in my cheat sheet of autoimmune myelofibrosis where you have lymphoid aggregates and the primary treatment is steroids. And so how do we stage and risk stratify PMF? 
early, so technically there's two stages. There's the early prefibrotic stage of PMF, which can look a lot like ET with thrombocytosis. And then what we more commonly think of, which is the later fibrotic stage, which is associated with the collagen fibrosis and also has more megalocaryocytic atypia. There are many risk stratifying systems in PMF, and they can include the dynamic international prognostic scoring system, which is what we'll go over, but there's actually a few more. So with the DIPSS scoring system, the risk factors are age greater than 65, having constitutional symptoms, having blood peripheral blast greater than 1%, white blood cells greater than 25,000, or a hemoglobin less than 10. Each factor gets you a point, and we see that median overall survival unfortunately decreases with the increase of those risk factors. So low risk is having zero points. Intermediate one is having one point. Intermediate two is having two of those points or two risk factors. And high risk primary myelofibrosis is having three or more of those factors getting three or more points. There's also molecular risk associated with PMF, and they have driver mutations. So CalR actually has the better prognosis when compared to having JAK2 or MPL as the driver mutation or being triple negative and not having any of those, which has the worst prognosis. There's also something called high molecular risk mutations that we see in PMF, and they include IDH1 or 2, EZH2, ASXL1, or SRSF2. So having two or more of those high molecular risk mutations also puts you into the high-risk category for PMF. Yes, I don't think we need to know all the details of this criteria in terms of memorizing, but just know that high blast, high white counts, low hemoglobin, increased age are all or have worse prognostic features. And so how do we treat primary myelofibrosis? So at the Cornerstone, we do talk about supportive care with transfusions. And as always, you guys have heard us say this before, be aware of iron overload if you're giving multiple red blood cell transfusions. We'll also tackle talking about the anemia associated with PMF, which you check the EPO levels first. If the EPO levels are less than 500, you can consider utilization of erythropoiesis stimulating agents. If the EPO levels are adequate or greater than 500, you can think about steroids such as danazole or low-dose thalidomide or lenalidomide with prednisone. If there's hemolytic anemia related to the PMF, it may respond to cyclophosphamide or danazole. The second thing that we think about in treating PMF is those low-risk patients, so having zero of those risk factors. Observation is a fair thing to do, or you can try ruxolitinib, which is an oral JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor if the patients are symptomatic. We'll talk a little bit more about ruxolitinib later on, but one thing to note is that the more improvement of splenomegaly, the longer the overall survival and the better the patients do on ruxolitinib. So that is a standard that we look at. And then how do we treat intermediate and high-risk PMF? So intermediate one, so having only one of those risk factors, again, you can think about observation or ruxolitinib or clinical trial and possibly a stem cell transplant. When we get into intermediate two or the high-risk PMF, that's really where we talk about more advanced treatment. And that can be stem cell transplant if a patient is transplant eligible. 
If they're transplant ineligible, we look at the platelets. So if the platelets are less than 50,000, so thrombocytopenia, we have an approval for procreatinib, which is a JAK2 IRAK1 inhibitor. This was approved for thrombocytopenia associated with PMF based on the phase three PERSIST-2 trial in 2022. If the platelets are greater than 50,000, you can talk about ruxolitinib or fidratinib, which is a FLT3 JAK2 inhibitor or a clinical trial. One thing to note about the use of ruxolitinib is that there is no, if, the, if there is no reduction in spleen size or symptom improvement at the six month mark, it should be discontinued. And that's a ruxolitinib failure. We discontinue on a tapering schedule. You don't stop at cold turkey. Another pearl is that the risk of withdrawal symptoms that can happen and you can have a full relapse of clinical symptoms. So while you're tapering, you can also start a taper of steroids with prednisone. And so that can actually help ease people out of the ruxolitinib and prevent the progressive leukocytosis or increased blast that can happen. Other things that they may throw at you as possible treatment options on board day is hydroxyurea to treat the cyto. Um, high white blood cell count. You can talk about busulfan or interferon alpha and they're used in certain circumstances. Yes, and one other key pearl to know about fedratinib, which is used when the platelets are over 50, is that it can cause Wernicke's encephalopathy, in which case you need thymine. So remember, platelets under 50, you have percritinib. Platelets over 50, you have reluxitinib or fedratinib. And definitely know about the six-month cutoff if there is no improvement, because I'm pretty sure that was a question. And so are there any other progression complications we should know about? Yes, there are. So there's a high risk of progression to accelerated phase with peripheral or bone marrow blasts being between 10 to 19% or a secondary AML blastic phase. And that's when the blasts are greater than 20%. Treatment for this is if someone's a transplant candidate, stem cell transplant. If they're not a transplant candidate, you consider clinical trial or hypomethylating agents with or without the JAK2 inhibitors or possibly low intensity chemotherapy. Absolutely. Always remember trials. And so what are our key takeaways of this great overview? So the diagnosis of PMF, megalocaryocytic proliferation with increased fibrosis and not meeting another MPM, having that JAK2 positivity along with one of those Meyerner criteria gets us the diagnosis. You have to rule out secondary causes of myelofibrosis, and that can include AML, late-stage PV or ET, infections, autoimmune disorders, as well as other cancers. Be cognizant of risk factors, which is age greater than 65, having symptoms, having more than 1% blasts in the periphery, high white blood cells, or low hemoglobin. For low risk, we talk about observation or if symptomatic, ruxolitinib. Intermediate high-grade PMF, we talk about stem cell transplant if eligible. If ineligible, we talk about ruxolitinib or fedratinib if the platelets are greater than 50,000. If the platelets are less than 50,000, we talk about procreatinib. And also be aware of the accelerated phase or AML, blastic phase, in which case we talk about stem cell transplant. And if someone's stem cell ineligible, hypomethylating agents with or without the JAK2 inhibitors or low-dose chemo. Absolutely. So that was a great overview. And as always, thank you for listening. Good luck with studying. And please feel free to reach out to us if there are any topics that you want covered or if you have any corrections or comments on our Instagram or Twitter to OncDocs. Have a great week.